Hello and welcome to Beyond Biotech podcast number 36. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and we are into the busy month of March. A quick check of the Awareness Day list on our website for March shows there are 14 Awareness Months and Days, so no doubt we will be marking some of those with articles and interviews. It's also when we hope the weather starts to see some improvement in the Northern Hemisphere. Although the Aurora Borealis, otherwise known as the Northern Lights, were visible here in Scotland this week for those without a cloudy sky, which pretty much rules us out. March is also the month when I get confused by the time because parts of the US and Canada spring ahead and it's before Europe does, so it really plays havoc with setting up interviews. It's also the month when events start to take off again and today we're going to feature one of them and that's Bio Europe Spring, which takes place in Basel at the end of this month. And so two of the interviews on the podcast today are related to BioEurope Spring. There are conversations with Rosie Bernard, Senior Director, Production and Content Strategy for EBD Group EU, and she'll give us an overview of the event. And we also talked to Jordan Stillman, Project Manager of Partnering Services at EBD Group. And we also, on the podcast today, have a conversation with Cellular Origins CEO Edwin Stone. And so now it's time for the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. And before I launch into that, I should say if you're a regular reader and a subscriber to Labiotech, and I hope that you are because it's free, that you will this week have noticed two new names, as I have two new colleagues in the newsroom, Willow and Ruhi, and they are already producing some great material. And one of those was a look at 10 biotech companies making a difference in rare diseases to coincide with Rare Disease Day. We had another on life-changing treatments for rare disease, five advancements in rare disease research over the past year, and GC Biopharma acquired a haemophilia rare disease pipeline. In Australia, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Cartherics are going to work on CAR T-cell therapy for ovarian cancer. The European Commission approved the first gene therapy for haemophilia B, and we had an overview of the announcements being made on Rare Disease Day. Last week, we honoured Estonia on its national day, and this week we had a look at the biotech scene in Wales, because March the 1st is the Welsh National Day, St David's Day. A new lipid nanoparticle CRISPR delivery system has been developed. Ten new companies joined Bioinnovation Institute's Venture Lab program, and genomic medicine company Chroma has raised $135 million. Antiverse identified therapeutic antibodies targeting GPCRs. There could be a new dementia treatment after an intestinal bacteria discovery, and we had an article on five steps to strategic partnerships for health tech startups. Lily is to develop Confo's pain drug, and you can read all of these and plenty more at labiotech.eu. And so on to the first of our interviews this week. Before we get to BioEurope Spring, we have an interview about a new company, Cellular Origin. It's a TTP spin-out created to enable scalable, cost-effective and efficient manufacture of cell and gene therapies. Cellular Origin's CEO Edwin Stone can tell us more. 
All right, so I guess to get things started, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about cellular origins. Yes, thanks, Jim. Very happy to. So cellular origins, it's a culmination of, of a lot of time I and, and TTP have spent working in the cell and gene field. So my first exposure was back in 2014, working on one of the very early EMA-approved cell therapies. And since then, been deep in sort of the manufacturing challenges, which obviously has been a real problem for the industry, a real problem for getting kind of therapies to people at scale. Cellular origins birth is really trying to tackle what we see as a big remaining need in that is we've got all these incredible tools and tech that people are creating that I think are going to be pivotal in the future of the industry, whether that's better expansion systems or better editing systems. But how do we access those technologies at scale? And so Cellular Origins is really about helping therapy providers accessing those tools and technologies in a scalable, cost-effective and efficient manner. How does it work in terms of the spin-off? How did that kind of work? TTP um, historically generated spin-outs almost at a rate about one a year. Most of what TTP does is development services for clients. And so a lot of the systems that are used in cell therapy actually already will be things TTP developed, but without our name on it. But from time to time, when we see a need that we believe isn't being served, we'll create our own spin-out to go after that. We still harness TTP's development capabilities, so Cellular Origins is still very tightly plugged into TTP, which we think is very powerful in enabling us to scale and progress quickly. But the aim with that is that we can then offer customers, therapy providers, CDMOs, the ability to purchase the product to enable them to join their processes together and really link these kind of different elements together, remove the labour from that different elements. And that's why um, when we see something that needs a specific solution, we'll build a business to go after that. We've done it many times before. So one example that a lot of people are familiar with is in this field is the automation partnership. So that was around about 20 years ago. Initially, creating products like Cellmate, later created products like Amber, which are very widely used in process development to this day. Obviously, this is a, a field that is really hotting up right now, cell and gene therapy. What kind of products do you produce and what is the reason for doing this when there are clearly quite a lot of other companies in the space? Yeah, great question. The core of our product is is a robotic sterile connection system. So that's something we see that still doesn't exist. And and the industry, I think, has wrestled with it with problem for a long time of how we join things together. And one solution is almost to directly plumb everything together to kind of pre-connect everything, which kind of can work in the case where you've got a limited set of processes that you're trying to join together. What it often ties you into, though, is a challenge of how you really give flexibility to people to bring in new things. But the other core piece, the thing that really we recognise was a big challenge for the industry, is all of these therapies that we've got late stage, phase two, phase three, and the kind of Scott Lee quote that by 2025, we're hoping to have 10 to 20 therapy approvals a year. How do we make those? Because those therapies for 2025, we're not going to be able to radically change how they're being manufactured. We're going to have to manufacture those pretty much exactly the same as we're making them today. There's not going to be a lot of scope to do anything different. We, we know from some of the past work we've done with people like Amgen when we developed a, an EPO manufacturing system that was 40,000 roller bottles. That was done, not because necessarily it was the most obvious way economically to manufacture that therapy, but it gave direct line of sight to an approved drug because it was how that drug had been manufactured to date. The same applies in self-therapy. We need to have a route that makes minimal changes to those processes. Therapy developers see enormous risk with change. 
particularly late stage, there's very little incentive to do so. And if we don't have something that can accommodate the processes as they are today, therapy developers will continue to make them manually and will continue to treat 100, 200, maybe 1,000 at best patients a year. So we believe that the only way to do that is to offer a solution, say a robotic enabled solution that can join together those existing processes and really draws upon technologies that already been widely adopted in other fields. I mean, in many ways, bioprocess and cell therapy specifically has been quite slow to adopt. Technologies that have found homes already in everything from Amazon warehouses, Silicon Fab, all of those are now very highly, and I hate the word automated, automated means a lot of things, different people, but very highly labor reduced by using robotics, by using software systems, by using autonomous guided vehicles, Technologies that are really well were really proven wasn't the case 10 years ago, but now those things are, are very mature and very accessible. And so we've combined our knowledge of bioprocess, which there is the world of a bioprocess and selling gene is very specific. There's a lot of requirements placed on you around sterility, around GMP. That's really important to observe, but then bringing in those technologies from other industries. And it's that combination that we believe is unique and provides this opportunity to have therapy developers take their late stage therapy and access those same technologies they're comfortable with, they're happy with at scale. Without naming any names, do you have companies that you're already working with? We do. We've been very pleased by the response we've had to this. We're fortunate because we're deeply embedded in the industry already. That track record with TTP means that we already were well linked into the industry and that's really important for us i think it's very easy to to vanish down rabbit holes here and try and second guess what the industry needs and we spent a lot of time talking to people we actually spent a lot of time talking about ideas solutions that got binned and it took a long time for the final version of what we're now doing to mature and emerge and so we have really good mix of therapy companies, a mixture of late stage and early stage. I think both are important. As I say, there's this immediate need in the next three to five years for these late stage companies. But we also want to make sure that all these great new technologies that emerge in these new transfection technologies and the likes, that the early stage companies that we can plug those in as those companies mature. And we've also had real benefit from our relationship with equipment companies both small and large. I've mentioned there's all sorts of exciting new technologies emerging, but also obviously a lot of established players and being able to kind of talk to those people, bounce ideas around and look at how we think the industry moves forward has been really useful. And so something we're, we're really passionate about is working very closely with the industry as a whole, not trying to separate ourselves out, do our own thing, independent of anyone in the industry, but instead really look to the industry and really look to find where we think there is that need, that where we think we can fit into the wider industry, continue to allow other people to do what they do well and there's, there's lots of people doing incredible stuff whether it's new kind of physics that are enabling better editing approaches or whether it's new biology that uh, enable new therapeutic modalities really find where we fit within that so that we're helping bring these things together and i guess you can't remain static either you have to continually be learning and evolving yes yeah absolutely one of our taglines we talk about enabling patient access for today and tomorrow that is core in what we do. It's how we're going to help these patients that if we don't do something, as I say, in the next five to 10 years, effectively being denied these treatments, treatments that we know are ready to go, that if we get the manufacturing problem, I'd love to say the word solved, it won't be solved, improved better, that we can start to help those. 
And then looking beyond that, looking five years down the line, 10 years down the line, one thing we recognised actually is predicting that was fraught with danger. Are we going to see allogeneic therapies become the dominant modality? Are we going to see near patient manufacture start to take over from centralised manufacture? Are we going to see a replacement to CRISPR-Cas9 as, as a new editing modality? Trying to predict those is impossible. I think pretty much everyone would agree with that. And so for us, what was important was to have a solution that could enable as something new emerged, whether that is a new move in the manufacturing modality, whether it is a new move in the therapeutic modality, that we can still provide a core part in joining that together. And that's something that we've looked to try and create a system that is is flexible to the future, as well as serving that immediate need. And how important is pricing in all of this? Mm. I think it's key and there's a lot of pricing that precipitates through. The the most fundamental one is the therapy price and uh, obviously price is distinct from cost and there there is a great challenge there for our industry. There is, I think, a need in, in biotech generally is we do have to be able to sustain a decent margin for the therapy manufacturers. I have sympathy with that, that that is important in driving R&D. And so what we can do is help bring down that cost of goods that will enable then that price to the patient to come down, which will hopefully get us beyond these kind of $400,000 treatments and get us much more into cost competitive, hopefully one day with chemotherapy. But certainly to the point where, I mean, we saw just a week ago, finally, yes, Carter getting approved by NICE. So no longer under the Cancer Drugs Fund, but now under the core NICE approval pathway. That's fantastic. And already they're talking about the 400 patients that could be treated with that, whereas I think to date from 2018 to 2021, they treated something like 300 patients, so 100 a year. So hopefully we can now suddenly accelerate the deployment of that. But ultimately, price is going to be a really big driver to that. And so by bringing out that um, that labour, by producing as well more consistent therapies, because one of the other contributors to price at the moment is just yield on these therapies, which is relatively poor. And as therapies get more complicated, actually having consistent manufacturing is likely to become more important. Those, I think, are going to be really key things in terms of getting these therapies to patients. Yeah, I guess that the ultimate is having as many people treated as possible. But then, of course, there's also different regulations around the world and there's also different pricing mechanisms. And the U.S. system is vastly different to Europe, for example. Yeah, and I think with that, we, we talk about US and Europe, but we mustn't forget that's actually a relatively small part of the world. Obviously, China is pushing very hard on cell therapies, but then we've got developing countries. We've got Africa, we've got South America, and I, I do worry we are clearly already sowing the seeds of a, a multi-tier healthcare system where under the current system, obviously only people with access to the best medical policies in insurance cases will be able to access some of these therapies. We need to think not just at a national level, but a global level to that and making sure we don't end up with very disparate healthcare in different geographies. And I think that is quite a concern with these sorts of treatments. And so healthcare systems will be really challenged by cell therapies as it stands at the moment. I mean, just the total pot of money in the system is not enough to get these therapies to the patients that need them. And so we have two choices. We either need to put hugely uh, more amounts of, of capital into that. Obviously, in, in the UK, that would mean by taxation. In the US, it potentially means by insurance premiums. 
or we need to find a way to bring them down. And, and really, there is only one answer there that, that stands out, and that's a cost reduction, because otherwise it will end up only in the countries that can pump enormous amounts of capital into their healthcare systems. Um, for many countries, that is simply not a possibility. I mean, we saw it a bit with COVID and the way the vaccine inequality ended up working. We could see five to 10 years of huge healthcare inequality and how that could precipitate through into all sorts of discrepancies in terms of life expectancy and the likes potentially would be a real, I think, disastrous scenario at an ethical level. I think, yeah, we do need to think of this as a global problem. We need to think of it, how different healthcare systems are going to support this and look at how we solve that in that context. I mean, obviously, we're not going to be able to solve all the world's problems right this second. But do you see that there's the potential to make that better? I absolutely do. I do think at the core of that, it comes down, it's not just about why changing the manufacturing. And again, that word, I, I struggle with a bit of automation, but I use it for now as a shortcut. The availability of floor space, the availability of facilities are a scarce resource. And so when we're looking at how do we get access to these medicines globally, we need to be thinking about that as well. And so one of the things that you get through automation is you remove that need for skilled labour, or should I say specialist labour? I, I think the idea of de-skilling isn't necessarily quite true. I think it's looking at people that have skills that are now more amenable to automation processes at the moment fundamentally most of the people making therapies will have a huge amount of training in biology and gmp environments in the future we'll still need some of those people of course but hopefully we can get to a case where the bulk of the work is actually done by people that have a lot more knowledge of of automation of manufacturing because that's really what these processes are with specialist skills as needed but that i think is the thing that's um, really exciting about this is by reducing the amount of people that's needed by changing the skill base of the people that is needed suddenly we can start to get these therapies much more widespread are you working on a global basis or are you just working in certain countries at the moment it's a good question um for now we have to focus on building out, proving the technology and demonstrating that it can have that impact. Longer term, I certainly believe we have to be looking at this globally. And as I say, that that's not necessarily just US and Europe, but beyond those as well. We really think when we look at our system, it becomes very deployable in different locations. And, and, and the benefit supply, actually, it, it almost doesn't matter where we're talking about as, as a geography, whether it's setting up another site in the west coast of the US to replicate a site on the east coast of the US. Once you've got it down to a system running a protocol that is stored in software, that's a lot easier to do than having to land a new setup, having to qualify new people, having to train people up on new SOPs. And quite often, one of the great challenges of this industry is actually the churn in those people as well. So that's a constant thing that you're going through all the time of training and retraining. What we want to be able to do is it becomes greatly simplified when it is setting up a comparable site with the same equipment, running the same code with obviously oversight of people that gives us a way to deploy wherever. And so actually by solving the problem locally, I think you do create a solution that, that solves it globally. And you're a relatively new company. What do the next, I don't know, 12 to 18 months look like there? It's going to be an exciting time. So we officially announced the formation of, of Cellular Origins in the middle of January at uh, Facilitate Advanced Therapies Week. The next year is really building up those partnerships that I mentioned earlier. For us, it's now core. We've got 
confidence with the work that we've done internally in the lab. We've got a working proof of technology system operating already. We've got our early biological data on that already. The real crux of all of this, though, is, of course, getting these systems out there and proving them in situ. And we are really big believers in doing that early rather than spending years developing something internally without that input. And so our aspirations are to work really closely with the market over the coming months and and years to make sure that we're getting systems out there and getting that confidence that there is a solution that really is going to solve the problems we've discussed. Now it's to Bio Europe Spring, which is coming up later this month in Basel, Switzerland. Looking forward to that. It's a great opportunity to get together and hold lots of meetings, which is done through the Partnering One online platform. But before we hear about partnering, we're going to get an overview of Bio Europe Spring from Rosie Bernard, Senior Director, Production and Content Strategy at EBD Group EU, which puts on the event. So I guess if we cast our minds and clocks back a few months, it seems like it was years ago. But how was the bio-Europe in Leipzig? It does seem like ages ago, doesn't it? But I have to say, Jim, it was an amazing event. Thank you. And it was just so good to see everyone together again. And, you know, the atmosphere was so fantastic. There was such a buzz in the exhibition hall and in all the networking events, of course. I can give you some idea of the numbers, if that's interesting. We had, we actually had a record number of attendees in Leipzig with almost 5,000 attendees on site. And between them, they generated more than 24,000 meetings, which is just staggering when you think about it. And we also had nearly 400 delegates who joined us remotely, which was so good to see. In fact, when we crunched the numbers, we saw that 15% of the meetings scheduled were digital. So that was around 3,600 meetings, which is really great news for people who couldn't join us on site, I think. And on the content side, we had a really packed programme. There was a silver linings theme, which threaded throughout all the sessions, which gave the event I think, a really positive spin because we'd had such a difficult period for everybody leading up to it. And it was really great to see how well these sessions were attended and how engaged everybody was over the three days because there was a lot of content to get through. And then, of course, we had our startup and spotlight sessions. They're always a highlight. I'd like to say congratulations again to Modi Blast if they're listening for their winning pitch. Well done. And the fire alarm went off halfway through the opening plenaries for those of you who were there, which was alarming, but there was no fire. It actually was a very good icebreaker in the end. So it was all good, but it was just a really great event. I don't remember that. I must have been sleeping through that. Do you not? Well, if you're in the exhibition hall, you wouldn't have heard it. We just had to evacuate everyone in the plenaries and then everyone in the exhibition hall was like, what fire alarm? Moving forward to Bio-Europe Spring, how long has that been in existence and how has that evolved? Well, the very first Bio Europe Spring took place in 2007 in Milan and went on to be held in lots of other cities like Madrid and Barcelona. And it was really great new territory for the event because Bio Europe in the fall traditionally taken place in German speaking countries. So how has it changed? Well, over the years, Bio Europe Spring has been to more central and northern European cities. So places like Stockholm, for example, and Paris. It never went back to Germany because the idea was always to pick up new clusters, new companies, new research, 
and new opportunities, etc. And this worked really well. And soon the gap size-wise between Bio-Europe Spring and Bio-Europe started to close over the years because Bio-Europe Spring was always seen as the little sister. But now the little sister is, we like to say, is getting taller. So that's how it's evolved over the years. And what would you say to somebody who says, well, I was at Bio-Europe in Leipzig. What's the point of going to Bio-Europe Spring? Well, actually, and interestingly, most of our companies do go to both events. Some might just send a slightly smaller team to buy Europe Spring. What would I say? I would say there's such a great opportunity to meet new people at the event who are not in Leipzig. So around 40 to 50 percent of our attendees are actually first timers in general at all our events. So, so far, we can see there's around 1,200 first-time attendees already registered for Bio Europe Spring. So there's plenty of new faces and new business to be done for sure. And we've just calculated actually that we have around one asset per delegate, which means that Bio Europe Spring is on track to have a record 3,300 assets on offer, which is amazing. And then the other important aspect of the event, of course, is the new programme content. So we have around 100 top international speakers which is different from event to event and one of the program highlights will be our keynotes in Basel and they're led by James Sabri from Roche and Suzanne Kurtz from Novartis who will be sharing their partnering insights and best practice so there's lots of you know there's lots of different speakers there's different keynotes there's lots of reasons to attend. Do you have any other highlights that people should be looking forward to? Well, a definite highlight for me is our very lively competition in our startup spotlight session. So this is a lineup of 10 specially selected startup companies and they make a nerve wracking four minute pitch in front of a jury of investors, pharma deal makers and biotech business key opinion leaders. So it's quite daunting, I think, for these young guys to get up in front of such an impressive panel. But it's one of my favourite parts of the programme for sure. We're also Really excited to have the YVC Collective on board this year. This is a network of emerging life science VCs in Europe, and they will present a fireside chat between industry veterans and emerging VCs. So again, a nice mix between, I don't want to say old and new, but older and new. And this will all be about the pitfalls in biotech, uh, lessons learned, and you know things like how to stay passionate about your asset. And then there's another thing I'd like to mention, which is our commitment to sustainability. We're really looking at reducing waste significantly. So things like the carpet in the exhibition hall, there's a huge amount of waste. Once the event is over, that just has to be thrown away. So you can imagine the impact on the environment of that. So we're not doing it. We did it in Leipzig and it worked really well. And I have to say, no one missed the carpet. So we're going to be doing that again. And we're also shifting from printed signage, posters, etc., to more of digital signage and use QR codes more than we have in the past. And then in terms of catering, we're going to source local seasonal foods and we're going to offer much more vegetarian options. So less meat, which is already proving very popular with our attendees. And we're also involved in a mangrove planting project. And this is based on the number of meeting request responses on the partnering platform on P1. And last year, we were able to plant nearly 3,000 mangroves as a result of that and hoping to at least match that in Basel. We don't plant them ourselves, I have to say, but it's still a great achievement. And one last thing, one last highlight is there's a really fun evening for Bio Spring, and that's called the Home Dinner. 
And that's a side event of the conference. And that's been organised by Bio Valley Basel. And the idea is there is that there are hosts who will open up their homes, unbelievably, for drinks and dinner, I think, in groups of three or four. And I think that's a really nice, very different way to interact with each other. So I think that's a definite highlight for Basel. Sounds really interesting. It does sound nice. They're quite brave, aren't they? They're very, very much. Can you tell me anything about the venue, where it is in Basel and opening times and that kind of thing? Sure. So it's at the Metze in Basel, which is pretty central. And from Sunday, which is the 19th of March, you can pick up your badge there anytime, I think from two and until about seven. And then at seven for a couple of hours, we have a lovely welcome reception at the Volks House, and that's sponsored by Roche and Novartis. So if anyone can come to that, I think that would be a really nice way to kick things off. And then registration for the main day is on Monday, March the 20th, and that's from 7.45am. And the exhibition hall will also be open from then as well. So and if you want, just go and grab yourself some breakfast if you're there a bit early. And then the opening remarks and plenaries will start at 10am sharp. So hope you can all make it for that. And then there's honestly so much to see and to do. I would advise everyone just to go along to the website and have a look at the full agenda there. And it ends on the 22nd and then people have, I guess, an opportunity to see what Basel has to offer because it's quite the biotech hub, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And it's in a really nice place and it's well connected to everywhere. I'd like to stay for another couple of days if I could. Now we have a conversation about partnering with Jordan Stillman, who's Project Manager of Partnering Services at EBD Group. My name is Jordan Stillman, and I'm a Project Manager of Partnering Services at EBD Group. Basically, my role is to ensure that Partnering One runs smoothly for our events and its participants. Partnering One is EBD Group's all-in-one partnering solution. It's an online conference platform that allows you to contact other participants and schedule meetings with them. The platform allows you to build unique company and personal profiles, set your availability for when you'd like to meet, search for partners, and request meetings. And the system then sets up meetings for you based on the schedule data that you provide. So there's no need to go back and forth trying to find a mutually convenient time and place to meet. Partnering One finds your mutual availability with potential partners and sets everything up for you. One of the things I really like about it is the ability to set times when you're not available. So if you do want to leave at five o'clock, you you can set yourself to be not available after five o'clock. Yeah, it's gotten a lot more customizable over the years um, and we're always introducing new features. So it's a very exciting time for Partnering One for sure. How long has it been in use? So it's been around since about 2006, so quite some time. In 2018, the version that we use today was launched with lots of new features that are still being built on and expanded every day now. What do people say about it? Do do people like this compared to other platforms that are out there? Yes, absolutely. Partnering One is considered the gold standard partnering platform. We get really great feedback on the partnering opportunities at past editions of Buy Europe Spring and our other events in our post-event surveys. We've had feedback like attending Buy Europe for over 15 years is quite remarkable, that there is a continuous evolution improving the partnering system and the setup of the conference. BioEurope Spring has also been described as an excellent event for the biotech space where you can meet professional and companies from all disciplines and facets to exchange ideas for collaboration. So it's really 
uh, opportunity. We attract a wide range of business leaders and they seem to really like using our platforms. And we take their their feedback very, very seriously and put that back into what we're doing to develop and make it an even better platform. Do you have any stats that show how well used it is? Sure. So currently there are 37,000 requests in the partnering system for BioEurope Spring. We're currently in full swing for partnering since we're very rapidly approaching the event. And we actually do see the most activity about two weeks before the event. So things are really starting to pick up. Additionally, we're really, really excited that we have more partnering opportunities profiled than ever before for this event. There's already 2,500 assets in the system, of which 84% are biopharma, medtech, and technologies. So really excited, and we expect that will also grow in the coming weeks as we get closer to the event. As far as the virtual meetings are concerned, are those popular? Yes. So we currently have 2,945 attendees registered as of today, and 214 of them are digital-only participants, and that's about 7%. So many of those are young in pre-revenue program. They come from that program, um, which attracts innovative companies and with great pricing. So we sort of allow them a discount. And so then those companies can send two people to the live event and also include more colleagues in hybrid meetings, um, which really helps them get started with partnering and allows them to still participate. The week after the event, we have the virtual meetings, and we've been seeing that it's a really great opportunity for people to utilize that time. You know, schedules fill up on site, even with your best ability. You know, you open up all your time slots and you still can, you know, you have to eat, (laughs) you have to uh, rest. (laughs) You can't just be, I mean, some people do take meetings all day and I'm very impressed by them. But if you want to stop in to any of the programming on site, you know, you might run out of time. And so the virtual dates are a great opportunity to connect after the live event and continue having those conversations. Yeah, I never really thought of that. If there's ones that you can't fit in or yeah, it's not necessarily, there were a couple that I had last time that it wasn't because I didn't have any slots. It was just that I couldn't find any slots to go in. So yeah, that's a really good thing to uh, bear in mind is that if there are some that you can't do, then you can do them in the comfort of your home. Exactly. So right now we actually have over 4,000 meetings scheduled already. Again, as we're still a little bit out, but getting closer, that number is going to go up. And in general, for every 100 requests that are sent, there are definitely some that just don't get a response. About 20% of all requests that are sent are accepted, and about 45% are actually declined. And that's just an average. You know, some attendees do a lot better, but our goal is to help our attendees increase that 20% accepted rate and decrease it the time that they're wasting on declined and pending requests. And as it is, we anticipate that 50% of all meetings are going to be agreed by the 10th of March. So my recommendation is that people get started as soon as possible if they haven't already before everyone that, that you might want to meet with already has a full schedule. Because, you know, some requests will go unanswered. That's sort of just the nature of the beast as it is. But the sooner you start, the better off you'll be. Is there an app? Can you no, start? there is not an app. So 
you do not need to download anything to use Partnering One. And we actually recommend that you use it on your mobile device when you're on site so you can access the most up-to-date version of your schedule. You know, your schedule's dynamic, things are happening, things can change, meetings can be rescheduled, added, canceled, like while you're standing on site. But there's nothing to download. You just need a browser and your login credentials. Our site is completely mobile responsive. So that's how we recommend you access it on site. Can you um, connect it with calendars and get notifications, that kind of thing? Yes, you can download your calendar to import into your personal calendar, but there is no automatic sync between your personal calendar and partnering one. So if things change, your personal calendar might be out of date. So that's why we recommend that when you're on site, you just use the mobile version and check there because that will always be the most up-to-date version of your schedule. Sure. You mentioned that feedback's really important. Do you get a lot of feedback afterwards? And how does that feed into the evolution of the platform? For sure. So we are always investing in the platform and that is based on user feedback. We welcome suggestions anytime. We run a lot of surveys and we're constantly interviewing people at events and from our user steering group. Because the partnering platform ensures everyone gets the right meetings, we find that our delegates are actually really excited to be involved in our research. Um, And the user steering group currently has around 700 people from across the entire ecosystem. And we really, really appreciate everyone's support. Our feedback surveys after the event, we take all of that feedback very seriously and take into consideration when we're figuring out new features and and things that we can do to improve the platform. And as far as BioEurope Springs concerned, what kind of partnering opportunities are there available to people? Fire Europe Spring attracts a wide range of business leaders, including senior executives of leading biotech companies, business development teams from large and mid-sized pharmaceutical companies, investors, and other industry experts. Basically, we have a lot of different opportunities to find exactly who you're looking for. We have pretty robust search tools. You can go in and you can use a keyword search and then you can filter your results by sector, therapeutic area, state of ownership, number of employees, region, investment stage, and time frame so that you can target exactly what sort of partners you're looking for and then send a custom personalized request to meet and sort of start that conversation. It really is whatever you make of it. If you take the time to do your homework, do your research, and get your meeting requests out soon, you will absolutely have a great slate of scheduled meetings for the conference. And it's not one of these conferences like Gulf Food where you kind of need a boss to get from one side of the event to the other. I mean, everything's pretty central at these events anyway, so it's quite easy to get from one meeting to the next. Oh, yeah, for sure. So our meetings are all basically in one space. For the most part, we'll have booths and tables available on site and everything will be numbered and there will be partnering professionals like myself on site to help you find your way. So we're there to make sure that you have the most straightforward, simple experience to have the best meetings possible. You mentioned the way that you can sort things. Are there any other quick tips for using it? So many tips. Okay, so first I think I've already touched on this a little bit, but it's definitely so important to set your availability as soon as possible. Since you can't schedule meetings if the system doesn't know your schedule, so set up your availability as soon as possible 
make sure that that's all set and you're ready to go. One thing I'd love to highlight is we have a solve conflict feature, which suggests up to five time slots where all the other meeting participants are currently available, but you are not currently available because you might just not be set to available or you have a conflicting session book. So from there, you can sort of look and see where you might be able to set yourself to available so that the meeting can be scheduled, which our attendees have found really helpful. Another thing that I mentioned earlier was organization. Keeping track of your notes, good organization is really, really crucial. Um, We have a tags and notes feature that can help you keep track of all of your research that's accessible under our lists menu. So tags are basically colored bookmarks that you can customize and they can be whatever you want them to be. They are completely internal, only your company and you can see them, no one else. It basically allows you to organize your research to curate a short list or any sort of bookmarking that you need. And from any company page, you can just select read more and then create add and create tags from there, from any page. And notes are another type of bookmark that you can use within P1. On any company or personal profile, you can just add a note by selecting the add note button. And yeah, so you can have a nice organized list of everything that you're doing. And then when it comes to partnering, I cannot stress enough the importance of pre-event planning, because basically that's how you're going to get the best return on your investment. And as I've mentioned, you know, the partnering activity begins several weeks before the event. And if you don't participate, you might miss out on the opportunity to meet with partners who already have a full schedule. That's the danger if you don't get started right away. But I also want to mention with regard to timing that it it's while it's great to get started early and I can't recommend that enough, it's never too late to start. This sort of reminds me of a delegate that we've had in the past named Charlie. Um, he came to an event a few years ago and he wanted to meet tech transfer officers, but he complained to staff on the first day that he'd been on the exhibit floor all morning, but hadn't met any tech transfer officers and he was upset. But he had come to the event expecting networking, but everyone else was in previously scheduled partnering meetings. You know, that's what's unique to our events that although there are thousands of events taking place, one to one meetings, you know, it's private. So there's not a ton of evidence of it happening. And the thing that Charlie didn't engage with or understand the value of was that pre event planning. But even though he was at the event when he realized what he'd missed, he, you know, started sending out requests. And this happens all the time. People like sign up, they don't necessarily do the planning, but they realize what they need to do. And if everyone else is on the ball, you can even manage to get some meetings. Like in Charlie's example, he got some meetings, he got them on site. So my main advice is just be persistent. Don't lose hope. A lot of activity happens in the final week and lots of meetings can be scheduled the week before and even during the event. So just be prepared to be flexible and always keep your availability up to date. Yeah, absolutely good advice. And I think it's one of those things where when you're walking around, sometimes you'll meet somebody, have a quick conversation and realize we should meet. And they say, well, I've got a meeting right now, but let me get back to you. And Mm -hmm. you can kind of schedule things while you're there through the partnering. Absolutely. You can do it either through partnering, you know, send each other a request right there and it'll get scheduled. Also, if at any point, you need assistance, like there's a partnering help desk on site and we are there to help you. You know, if an ad hoc meeting comes up and you need space, if we have the space available, we're happy to set you up with a meeting. That's on a first come first serve basis, but we're here to help you and make sure that you 
can get everything you need to get done done at the conference. I should point out that this podcast is going out on March the 3rd, which is also the early bird registration deadline. So if after the interviews you're thinking you should go, then you still have just a little bit of time to register and save some money. Also, if you're already registered, partnering is now open so all attendees can start to engage with other attendees, requesting their priority meetings on that Partnering One platform that we heard about. And if you're looking to be featured on LaBioTech with an interview, you can reach me there too to set something up. And you can find out tons of information about the companies attending. It's a really comprehensive tool. Anyway, that's it for another podcast. I hope it's inspired you to attend BioEurope Spring in Basel, where you can visit the monument that marks where three countries meet, as it's right on the border with France and Germany. The monument is on land on Swiss soil, or concrete, whereas the actual border is in the middle of the river, but that's not really a good place for selfies. Anyway, I'm looking forward to being there and hopefully meeting some of you at the event. Next week's interviews are all done, but I do have a bit of a backlog and I still have to edit them all. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us and I hope wherever in the world you are that you have a great week ahead. Take care and join us next week for another Beyond Biotech.